Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we have my chat with author TJ Alexander, whose next book, Chef's Choice, comes out May 30th. Chef's Choice is a delightful rom-com set between New York City and Paris, in which two kitchen disasters must fake date and whip themselves and a lot of egg whites into shape in order to conquer a culinary empire. TJ talks about being a young romance reader and the books they found in their vacation home as a kid, growing up in their family's restaurant, the glory days of Food Network, particularly Iron Chef, the joys of writing a tea-for-tea tea romance, which of their characters they're most like and would most like to be friends with, the hardest scene to write in Chef's Choice and their favorite scene, their approach to writing sex scenes, and, of course, some books they've loved recently. Before we transition to that conversation, a little about TJ. TJ Alexander is an amateur baker and author who writes about queer love. Originally from Florida, they received their MA in writing and publishing from Emerson College in Boston. They live in New York City with their wife and various houseplants. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with TJ. How are you? I'm good. I'm extremely chilly. This is like the coldest May on record in New York City. So if my heater starts clanking and going, I'm real sorry about that. It's atmospheric. Yeah. It's good radio. Yeah, exactly. It's We're doing Foley sounds. We're really trying to get the full experience here. Mm-hmm. It's also genuinely confusing because I, it makes it very difficult for me to process that it's May. <laughs> yeah. Like when I saw on the calendar, like, oh, my book's coming out this month. I was like, no, it's not. Like, because- no, because it's freezing. <laughs> it can't be coming out because it's still cold. Like that's yeah. not how time works. Yeah. It, co- it comes out like the week before Pride and that's like the hottest day of the year. So like... It's making time even harder to track. Thank you so much for making the time. No, thank you for having me. I'm so happy. I just want to start by asking, what is your background in reading romance? Um, So I think for like a lot of queer people, I started young (laughs) and then kind of gave it up for a bit and then came back to it later in life. Um, you know, because, you know, you're, you're young, you're maybe like in your early teens, for example, you find some old timey romance novels and like the take a book, leave a book shelf on a vacation home. You know what I mean? And you just kind of like, I'm just going to, you know, stay up all night with my new friends reading like, you know, all this. Um, so that was kind of my foray into romance, I think. And I loved it. Um, But then, like, as I got older and I realized, like, oh, this isn't actually, like, for me, like, the books that I was reading back then, like, this isn't for me. This isn't, like, these characters aren't like me. Like, I I didn't see a gay character in a book that wasn't super sad (laughs) until I was much, much older. So I just kind of, like, put it aside for a while and I, I didn't think about it very much. And then, like, yeah, and then as I got older, I kind of like returned to it just to see what was going on, I guess. And was pleasantly surprised that like things are starting to, you know, evolve. Things are starting to get better a little bit in some ways. So um, yeah, that was my, that was my romance childhood that and like scouring my local library for romances and realizing that they were only like I guess for whatever reason ordering like books with no kissing in them like (laughs) no (laughs) yeah very very odd uh, a very very odd genre of romance where it's just kind of like we shake hands at the end (laughs) which is like fine if that's your thing (laughs) like these were these were all very like prairie town romances though like historical romances with like no sex and very little romance it was just mostly kind of like I don't know little house on the prairie but with like a couple at the end so yeah that was my that was my background yeah and there's a time and place for those but we want access to all kinds of romance in our libraries yeah especially when you're like you know 12 and you're like this isn't as good as the one I saw at the vacation home (laughs) or it's like it's not the way that I thought it would be like given what I saw at the vacation home for example. <laughs> for example, just hypothetically. Mm-hmm. And did you did you always want to be a writer, even if it wasn't necessarily that you wanted to be a romance writer? 
I mean, I think I always like make up little stories as a kid. I would like, you know, design my own goofy little books and staple them up into pamphlets and distribute them and force my family to read them and give me their honest opinions on the on the craft of them. But I don't think I mean, I went to I went to college to study creative writing, but even then I wasn't thinking of it as like a serious career option. You know, once I I graduated from there, I thought, well, like the only way to go from here into the adult world is to kind of go into publishing, which I did for like a second. (laughs) Just like a very brief blip in time. And, uh, and yeah, it just seemed like, I don't know, this idea in the back of my mind, like that I, I wasn't paying attention to like a lot of things. for example, let's say, Um, yeah, for a very long time. And then once I did start taking it seriously as an idea, things started moving very fast and clicking. So, yeah. So your latest book, Chef's Choice, and your first book, Chef's Kiss, are both very like foodie books. Do we still say foodie? Is foodie cringe? Is it... it's fine. I just used foodie books as a hashtag today on Instagram. So if you are cringe, so am I. And we are free. Um, you shall yes. be free. <laughs> yes, both those books are are take place in the food world. And I love food. I love eating. I want to eat all the time. I'm think- I just had lunch and I'm thinking about what I'm e- going to eat for dinner right now. What's for dinner? Anything exciting? Either, like, so like putting aside book. <laughs> no, this is more important. It's either going to be this like miso tofu sauce that I saw someone make on Instagram and thought like, ooh, that's like actually a really good idea. Like you blend it up and it's like a cream sauce. Ooh. Um, Or it's going to be some kind of like pan roasted salmon. I've been doing a lot of salmon recently. It's very Um, healthy. Yeah. It's It's fine. (laughs) Could you combine? Could you do like the miso sauce on the salmon? I don't know. I like the, the sauce was shown as like a pasta sauce alternative, like an Alfredo alternative. I, I don't really think of fish going with well with Alfredo sauces. Cause we think of those as like cream and cheese and like heavy sauces, but um, I'm sorry. I'm just getting way too in the weeds of like what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. <laughs> Have you ever worked in the food industry in any like capacity? Oh yeah. Um, so as a kid, my parents owned a seafood restaurant, bar, grill type place. Um, I grew up in South Florida and I worked there from like the age of like nine or something um, up until I I left for school. So like I did every kind of job at, at the restaurant besides cooking because that was considered like a very gendered, like this is like men are line cooks. And oh, interesting. every other job in the restaurant was something that I could do. Um, so that's what I did. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I worked in, I worked in restaurants and, you know, through, through school, through college, I had like, you know, uh, service industry jobs and um, it's, yeah, it, it's a world that is funny because like, it's one that everyone has like a passing familiarity with as like a consumer usually, but I would say that there is like, I don't know, a lot of misunderstandings about how much work goes into it and how hard that work is. Um, so yeah, I I grew up there in the food world. I love it there. I don't want to be there anymore because my knees hurt. <laughs> yeah, that's very reasonable. So in your first book, spoiler alert, they end up filming a TV cooking show. Yeah. I mean, um, this book's been out for a year. We can spoil it, right? I think so. Yeah. Sure. You should still read it. That's not really a plot spoiler. Yeah. Um, Can't read the book now. We know there's a cooking show. (laughs) Um, But I was going to say, do you have a favorite TV cooking show? Oh my God. I have so many. You know, I, when I was coming of age, I guess in the, the nineties and the aughts, Food Network was like on the rise, right? Like Ina Garden and Rachel Ray's 30 Minute Meals and all those shows that like, those are the shows that basically taught me how to cook or taught me what like cooking food can can look like. Because, you know, even growing up in a restaurant, most of my childhood, you know, my parents were too busy to teach me how to cook. (laughs) Like that wasn't something that they were doing. There was no like, 
you know, pleasant rainy afternoon where my mom like taught me a family recipe or anything like that was not happening. So it was like, it was shows like that. And recently I'm actually revisiting a lot of reruns of Iron Chef, the original Iron Chef. Original Iron Chef. Yes. Like game changing television show, right? Like so many things that we just like kind of take for granted now when we think of like food as entertainment, like that show really did like create a lot of those things. Like the idea that like food can be something that's competitive, which it already was right. Like chefs and restaurants and, you know, the food industry was very competitive, you know, in that insular world. But the idea that like what I have been noticing now, like revisiting this show is seeing that like, there's like one food critic on the panel sometimes, Asako Kishi, who's amazing, but everyone else on these, uh, you know, the judges panel judging this food is just like some guy, you know, (laughs) like a politician or like a, a movie star or a singer or like some, you know, some public figure, but like not anyone who's like a food expert. And that was what I think Iron Chef was doing so, you know, brilliantly so early in the game was like teaching people that like, Hey, actually, we're all kind of experts in food because everybody eats. You can have an opinion on food because you know what tastes good as just a person existing in the world. So, yeah, I just I love that show so much. The reruns on Food Network, like like I could I could watch just like hours and hours of that show for real. It was I, I loved everything that it was doing. And also, like, sorry that I'm just like, this is becoming a show about Iron Chef at this point. I have so many things to say about it. Like, the idea that, like, that you would watch an episode of Iron Chef and there would be a story, right? There would be a narrative. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, some guy's coming in and he's going to fight some other guy and they're going to cook fish today. It was like, they set it up so that there's, like, steaks and, like, this man's father just died and he has to, like, you know prove to his family that he is like going to take over the restaurant that his father left. It's just like real drama, like true, true, like character arc of these, of these chefs that they were featuring on this show. And I'm sure a lot of it was like, you know, for TV, extremely, you know, pumped up, but it's, it just, I think that it showed people that like, wow, food is actually like something that you can watch in, in a way that is, is fun and not like, you know, somebody hidden away in a little kitchen that you're just like never going to see. I don't know. I just, I love food TV. I love it so much. (laughs) I do too. And it's always surprising to me that it's interesting when you can, you can't taste the food and you can't smell the food, but like, I still have a really strong opinion about like whose food was better. Absolutely. And, and these shows do such a good job, the competition shows at least, you know, do such a good job of setting you up for that, of being like, well, he didn't rinse the such and such, or, well, that's not the traditional way that you would flay that eel. So we'll see what the judges say. And then you're sitting there is like, or at least I do, is like this Sunday morning, Monday morning quarterback. I don't play sports. <laughs> Couldn't say. Where you're just like, yeah, you should have flayed that eel in the traditional manner, actually. A thing I knew about for sure and definitely was aware was a thing 10 minutes ago. (laughs) Yeah, like you just just found out about it and yet you now know everything there is to know about this species of eel that they're cooking. (laughs) It's very educational. Yeah, it is. I'm never going to cook eel, but if I were to, (laughs) I would know more about it. I feel dangerously capable of doing it and I'm probably not. Oh yeah. Yes. That is, that is one of the downsides of watching a ton of shows and YouTube channels about cooking and baking is like, you know, you're sitting on the couch on a Saturday morning in your jammies and you're like, I can make a croquembouche this weekend. <laughs> like, I, can just, what are, what are, I have everything I need. I have flour, I have eggs, I have butter. And then all of a sudden you're like in the middle of a, the worst mistake of your life because no, you shouldn't be making croquembouche. Turns out it's hard actually, but It's very hard and you don't need to do it. A professional could do it so much better than you. Like I had a whole list of things that I wanted to learn how to bake when I first started baking. And one of them was like croissants. And now I'm like at the point in my life where I know that I don't need to learn how to bake a croissant because I'm never going to do it better than like, you know, the croissant that I can buy down at a bodega. It's just never going to happen. I think I could make a croissant because I actually bake a lot, but I, 
it's the time. You got to layer that. You got to laminate that dough. Like, I'm not going to, I don't have time for that. It's like a three-day investment of your, of your life into making a batch of croissants. So like, you know, mm, mm, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not for me. <laughs> but it's for some people and we love that for them. Absolutely. I support them. I love it for you. There's going to be a lot of downtime between those folds. Maybe read a book in between. You could read a book, for example. For example. <laughs> for example, Chef's Choice, which comes out at the end of May. Um, so you have two books. Well, you have one and a half books out. You have a book yeah. out and a book that's coming out, which is why we're talking. But so one of the main characters in Chef's Kiss, the first book is non-binary. And then both of your main characters in Chef's Choice are trans. So what were some of the joys of writing trans and non-binary characters into your romances? And especially with this book, writing like a T for T or like a romance with two trans main characters. Oh, yeah. I was really looking forward to doing this once I realized that um, I could. And <laughs> because I think if, you know, for the people who have read Chef's Choice, some people had given me some feedback, some readers had, you know, contacted me. A lot of readers had a lot of really, really sweet and lovely things to say. And some people, um, you know, gave some feedback that like to them, especially like queer or trans people would approach me and say, you know, I, I liked the book. It just, it did feel a little bit gender 101. Like you were teaching a lot of concepts for the first time to a to a cis person or a straight person, which was true, which was exactly the plot of Chef's Kiss in a lot of ways. But now that we've done that, you know, box ticked, it's that's we're done with that. We don't need to do it again if we don't want to. Now I can move into a new era, which is two trans people just arguing about things that trans people argue about. Because, you know, I I am uh, married to a, a trans woman. My wife is trans. I am non-binary. And we, our, our relationships are just, you know, they're, they're different than a relationship between two cis people or a cis person and a trans person. And I think that a lot of things that make our, our relationships, people who are T for T, our, our relationships are interesting and, um, you know, joyful is the chance that we have to like interact with somebody who has some of the same experiences as us um, on a daily basis and to love each other and to support each other in ways that maybe another kind of couple wouldn't have an opportunity to do. So yeah, so Luna is uh, the main character in this book. Luna is a trans woman. She was sort of a little fun side character in Chef's Kiss and her love interest Jean-Pierre is a trans man. And they get to be hot and trans and, and smooch together, which is like, that's the dream. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's delightful. I had a wonderful time with it. I also love the idea that Jean-Pierre chose the name Jean-Pierre for himself. He was like, I would like to be the Frenchest French man to ever French. I Okay. So I'm not French, obviously. <laughs> and my French is not great. So I did have a very, very, very generous native French speaker take a look over this book to, to give me some feedback while I was writing it. And one of the comments I got was like, wait a minute. So Jean-Pierre is his chosen name. Okay. Like, it was kind of like the, the, the sound that was made during that comment. And I was like, yeah, is that good, bad. And it, it was, I didn't realize it because again, I'm not French, but it's apparently a very old timey name that like normal people do not get named in the year of our Lord, like 2023. So like the fact that he did choose for himself, this name that is just like so over the top and so like ridiculous. I was like, oh no, actually, let's just keep going with it. Let's You're like, no, it keep it in. That's actually correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually perfect. And let's give him like four middle names as well, because <laughs> that's just the kind of guy he is. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that felt right to me. What has your experience been like publishing romances with trans protagonists? Have you been getting a lot of like cool feedback from readers? Has there been any pushback? I mean, I've gotten, I'm, I've gotten some really sweet and heartfelt and uplifting messages from readers who read Chef's Kiss and said, you know, um, it, it, it's great to see someone non-binary. It's great to see like someone with my experience, you know, reflected in, in a book like this. And then like the ones that really make me cry are like from parents who are like, 
you know, my trans kid or my non-binary kid gave me this book and it's really helped. And now we get to like talk about it because I, I think I, you know, understand things that they were trying to explain better. And it's like, oh, okay, well, thanks for making me cry. Somebody's mom. Like, <laughs> mothers on Instagram are constantly making me cry, um, which is, you know, that's good for them. Um, as far as pushback, you know, I try not to spend too much time on social media. So, <laughs> so if there is some, um, I'm just going to block. I'm not going to, you know, but, but like in publishing, I, I, I've gotten nothing but support from my editor, from my team. I think the only kind of pushback I would say I experienced was in the process of querying chef's kiss. Cause it was my first book and I was looking for an agent and that process was really difficult. Cause a lot of the feedback that I would get you know, from agents was kind of the very, you know, the very boilerplate, like, oh, I didn't connect with the characters, which a lot of that's feedback that a lot of writers get. But like, <laughs> I think that a lot of, you know, especially writers of color and, and, and queer writers get this feedback and it like implicitly or explicitly is stating to us like characters of like, you know, characters that are trans or non-binary are not gettable by the reading public like normal people can't connect with these these characters which is to to you know imply that normal people can't connect with trans and non-binary person in real life which is just not true which is false and those people were wrong (laughs) and i chose to ignore them um you know i but it's good to hear those kinds of things when you're in that process, because those are not the kinds of people you want to be working with anyway. Right. Like mm-hmm. if you have to like force yourself to connect with my characters because of whatever reason, um, I don't know, maybe that's soul searching that you need to do. Not me. <laughs> I've already, I've already done that. <laughs> well, I'm glad that once you found your team, it was no more of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm mean, so far. I mean, I, it helps that like these books that I'm writing are not like, anything but this right it's like it's bam right on the tin that this is a romance um with a non-binary love interest it's a romance with two trans people it's you know my next book is going to be a romance uh, about a trans man going back to his hometown and getting a second chance with an ex-boyfriend and it's like that's an integral part of the back copy that you cannot ignore. <laughs> so the the no's that I get, the rejections that I get are just, that's fine because like, this isn't, um, this isn't trying to be anything other than what it is. Like me. Yeah. So like you said, Luna, who's the main character in book two, was the roommate of Simone, who's main character in book one. Was that always the plan that Luna would get her own book? Was this like a, you had like a long-term plot situation going on here or you had written Luna and then you were like, hey, she was fun. I mean, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the for sure plan. I I knew when I was writing Chef's Kiss, well, first of all, I didn't know when I was writing Chef's Kiss that it would get published. I was hoping, you know, at one point um, when I realized like, oh, this book is not bad. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could be published perhaps, um, but I didn't know. And I definitely didn't know that I would ever get a chance to do another one. Um, But I did know that Luna like came into that story with big main character energy, like already baked in, like she was stealing scenes and, you know, having the best lines and just like, you know, um, I loved writing her. And so I had in the back of my mind, like, wow, if I ever do sell this and if I can ever sell it as a series and, you know, and if, and if, and if, I had that kind of idea floating. But when I signed my contract with uh, Atria, it was for, it was a two book deal. So Chef's Kiss would be the first book. And then the second book was just kind of a big question mark and with the idea that I would eventually pitch something and see if they liked it. <laughs> so I ended up pitching, you know, a sequel and saying like, you know, what if Luna is the star in this book? And they were like, great. And then, and then what? And I was like, okay, let me figure that out. So I actually, I, I knew that she was going to be the, the hero, the heroine, but I had no idea at first, like who her love interest was going to be. And I actually like ran through a bunch of weird options of like existing characters from chef's kiss first. I was like, what if she starts dating Petey? I love Petey. Like maybe that'll work. And you know, all these like alternate universes, all these closing door paths that this character could have gone down if I had just like, you know, made a different decision, I guess. But then like, I don't know. I did kind of have like a weird light bulb moment where I was like, well, what if it's a tra- another trans person? And then I can write a T for T couple. I was like, it's too bad. I don't have like any other trans characters. 
there's in book one. And then I was like, wait, I do. I do have one. He's like mentioned so briefly, but like he's there. He exists in, in the world of the first book. And I was like, what if he's a real person that I bring in? And then everything just kind of snowballed really organically from there, I think. So yeah, that's how this book happened. And I'm really glad it did. I feel very lucky that I got to revisit this world and revisit Luna's adventures. Yeah, I love a good like companion novel, classic romance structure where you're like, I don't want to read a book with like total strangers, but it's great because I already met this person. So easier, easier to go in. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, at this point, I've written five books <laughs> at this point from almost start to finish. I'm, I'm finishing up the fourth book right now. And this book, Chef's Choice, was, I think, a little easier than the others, just, just because some of the characters were already established. And I knew who Luna was. Um, I didn't need to, like, figure that out completely from scratch. And and things just felt like, oh, I'm, I'm coming back to, you know, I'm coming back to school after <laughs> the summer vacation or whatever. And some of my old classmates are still here. So that's cool. That was nice. I, I want to do that again. <laughs> I would love an easier one again. <laughs> God, publishing timelines are so wild because this is your second book coming out and you've written five. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. So this is the second book that I, uh, that I've written under the, the Atria umbrella. And then I have another two more coming out with them over the next, uh, couple of years. And then after that, um, a, a completely different thing is happening. So yeah, things things are just weird and wild and it all has to do with like contracts and timelines and things like that that are like boring. And, you know, every time I try to explain it to my mom, she just like, like her eyes glaze over. <laughs> That's fair. I used yeah. to be a lawyer. So I'm like, ooh, contracts. Tell me, ooh. <laughs> Tell me more about the seasonal timing of this title. <laughs> Interesting. You now have, of the two books that are, like, in the world, four main characters. You have Ray, Simone, Luna, and Jean-Pierre. Who are you most like, and who would you most want to be friends with? I wish I could say that I was most like Ray, because they are chill and kind and, like, very cool. Um, so I would probably most want to hang out with Ray, but I cannot honestly say that I am like them very much. Um, besides being non-binary, we have not not a whole lot in common. And we like beer. Other than that, not a whole lot in common. I probably have more in common with Simone than any other character. <laughs> like her her crippling anxiety, inability to navigate social situations, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, I I I I feel like I was putting those two halves of myself, like the the half that wants to be cool and outgoing and the half that's actually very introverted and nerdy. Like that that's why I I wrote that first book because I wanted those two parts to kiss. <laughs> so, okay, so you now have written many books. What is your writing process like? Are you an outliner? Are you like a I don't know, what do you do? What's your whole deal? Well, get ready for me to complain a lot because it's so hard. <laughs> um, Chef's Kiss, I wrote just kind of, you know, as a as a hobby, you know, while having, you know, other obligations in my life, right? And not knowing that it was ever going to be um, published or sold. Um, so it was just kind of like loosey goosey, like just, you know, work on it when you have time, like just, just, you know, tinker away every once in a while kind of thing. But I also wrote it in like five weeks. <laughs> so if you can imagine that, but like also completely on speed <laughs> as far as timeline went, that was how that book went. And since then, I have not been allowed to do that again, which is a good thing because it wasn't healthy. <laughs> so for all the other books that uh, I've written, except for, uh, you know, the, the last one that will come out in, in several years, all those books were written uh, from an outline because I had to pitch, you know, the, the idea first. Um, which requires an outline and sample pages and a lot of boring stuff. But you have to be able to articulate to, you know, adults, like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I promise. I have like a vague understanding of what's going to happen and and who these people are. And as soon as, as soon as I get the sign off on something like that, I'm like, great, now I can do what I want. <laughs> but 
but like you can't because you have like this outline that is there to guide you, which is, you know, again, a good thing. So yeah, my, my process is really like, I unfortunately have discovered that I do much better work early in the morning. So I wake up really early before anyone else in the house is, is up and at them. And I try and get in at least, you know, two or three hours of, of writing and depending on the project and depending on the deadline, like it could be a thousand words, 2000 words, you know, whatever. Um, that's my goal for a day. And then when I'm done, I just sort of kind of collapse <laughs> into an exhausted heap um, and complain about how hard what I did just what, like just com- constant complaining about how difficult it is. I was I was looking over, in, you know, in preparation for us talking today, I was thinking like, you know, how different is this process from that I'm, I'm doing right now, writing book four? Um, is, am I doing like a really different process compared to what I did with Chef's uh, Choice? And I was trying to think about it. And I was like, in my memory, I wrote Chef's Choice like so easily. It was just this breeze of a, you know, I just sat down and the words flowed and it was like barely a month or two and the whole thing just came together. And I'm like, you know, saying this out loud to try and like get it straight in my head. And my wife is like, you complained every day, every day you had some problem and you were whining about it. And it was the hardest thing you'd ever written. And yeah, every book I write is the hardest book I've ever written because it's what I'm writing right now. And it seems impossible, but it's not. I know that in the end, it all pulls itself together somehow and works. So yeah, that's my process. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. (laughs) It's it's a little chaotic, Um, but it's working so far. So I guess I'll just keep doing that. I mean, if it's working, it's working. Yeah. Do you remember what the hardest scene to write in Jeff's Choice was? If you can think back to like 17 years ago when you were writing this book. I know. I was a different person when I wrote this book about a year ago. I... (laughs) I I do think I have a scene in mind that uh, was probably the hardest to write technically because I don't think this is a spoiler, but these characters cook in this book. They cook. They, I know. It's wild. Um, they do have to cook something uh, as part of this fake dating arrangement. It's really convoluted. Um, I am embarrassed that like real lawyers might read this and be like, that's not how... <laughs> It's okay. Real lawyers turn that part of our brain off. Like there's a lot of like romances where people like have to get married to inherit. And we're just like, sure, that's legal for sure. That's a totally real thing you could for sure put in a will. Oh, thank fuck. Because (laughs) there's a convoluted reason that these two characters have to learn how to cook, having really no experience in, in cooking. And not only do they have to learn how to cook, they have to learn to cook some very complicated hot cuisine, extremely French, (laughs) extremely complicated. So I was like, okay, so I'm just going to have to like figure out what it is they're cooking and how you would do that. And then like, I realized like, well, you don't know how to do that because you're not a French chef. And I was like, right. Mm -hmm. Good point. So how, you know, then I had to like, kind of backtrack and figure out like, okay, well, what do, what do fancy restaurants even serve? Like when was the last time I've been to a restaurant that cost more than like $10 a plate? Okay. Um, and then I had to figure out like what the menu itself would look like that they were trying to create all the ingredients that they would have access to all those things. And, and the timeline of like how they would actually go about doing it. I mean, I had like spreadsheets happening. It was, it was because I had just gone through the process of ushering the first book, Chef's Kiss, through the you know copy editing and proofreading process. And I was so focused on the idea that like, if a copy editor sees that I made a mistake, <laughs> I will die of embarrassment because I used to copy edit as a, as a gig. And it just, it it embarrassed me to have things pointed out like, well, this character now has three hands. So great job, TJ. Like, we're going to have to fix that. And I was like, oh no, very embarrassing. And, you know, I didn't want a copy editor to be like, well, actually, you know, shrimp from this region wouldn't be in season. They wouldn't be like sending Icelandic blah, blah, blah. to. So I was really in my own head about how this needs to be perfect. And then I realized like, actually, this is very very silly because (laughs) 
<laughs> because does anyone actually care if like the salmon is in season when this character like you know makes this dish or whatever and also like there is an inherent like you know i have all the respect in the world for gourmet chefs and 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 the food that they're putting out it's again a very difficult job no matter what level you're working at in the food industry but there is this inherent kind of silliness to some of these foods that are very foo-foo and fancy and French. And I thought, well, let's just like, let's just make fun of the French. <laughs> like, let's just, let's just make fun of the food a little bit. Let's put some silly things in there that aren't technically even possible because it's a joke because it's not a real meal that you, a real person would ever make. So I was like saying that they were doing things like, you know, rhubarb foam on top of stews and things. And copy editors were like, I don't know if you can make a foam out of a rhubarb. And I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> and they were like, okay, you know, jokes get a pass. So, you know. <laughs> Wait, did you send your complicated timeline spreadsheet to your copy editor? Or did you like send them this book and you were like, good luck trying to figure out if this is possible? Well, now that you mention it, maybe I should have provided the work. Like maybe I should have shown my work <laughs> That would have been a nicer thing to do for this horrifically underpaid copy editor just trying to make sense of what I had written. Okay, well, new rule. Every time I do something like this that is truly ridiculous and silly, I will make sure to provide my notes. <laughs> just like show your work on the test, you know, you yeah, just like yeah. attach a, it. A great idea. A great idea for future reference. What is your favorite scene in the like final version of Chef's Choice? I just revisited this the other day when someone asked me about this. And I, it kind of surprised me that this was what ended up being my answer. But there's um there's a scene where Luna and Jean-Pierre are about to cook together for the very first time. They want to, you know, start practicing the foods that they're going to need to present by the end of the book. And before they do that, they go to the grocery store together to get all the ingredients that they need. And when I was writing this scene, I just thought like, this is going to be the, just logistics, logistically, like the things that they're going to get and the things that they need to do before we get to the fun part, which is them cooking. But it was the grocery store that like, I think their relationship really started happening because I don't know if you've ever been grocery shopping with anybody else but you learn a lot about a person <laughs> from the way that they approach a grocery store. Like your character and your priorities are immediately revealed as soon as you step foot into a grocery store, I believe. I love going grocery shopping with, with my wife, with other people, with friends, because it's so much more fun. And it's so like interesting to see what other people do and how they gravitate towards certain things. So yeah, that I think that's going to be my my vote for my favorite scene because it really like set the stage of like who they are and who they are together because they're like supposed to be doing this little project as a team and I just I just love the way that they interacted in that grocery store. It was fun and I would write it again. <laughs> Chef's Choice has a lot of favorite romance tropes. It's fake dating. There's just like lots of good stuff going on. What are some of your favorite tropes to read and to write if they're different? Ooh, um, hmm. mm, this is where it gets so tricky because there are tropes that I want to mention, but they are things that are happening in a secret, <laughs> in secret like projects, future projects that I don't want to like blow up my spot. There is one thing that I have not seen. I'm sure it's out there, but you know, I I haven't seen it personally. And I would really, really love to, which is like a golden years sort of romance, you know, like um, a retiree, like, you know, 60s, 70s era of your life romance, because I think that just, you know, demographically, that is the age when a lot of people are looking for love for the second, third, fourth time in their lives. And I think that that is such an interesting time to one, be alive and two, to be doing this thing that a lot of people associate with like being young and not knowing anything and having, you know, no idea how to approach things and, and forming your own personality, let alone like your relationship. 
So I am not an, uh, an elderly person, but I would love to read about, you know, two old men smooching, two like old ladies, like getting together. Like, I think that that is like, I think older heroes and heroines and romance is, is such a, a sweet and, and, and cute idea. And also like a really hopeful one because we're hopefully all going to reach an age where we will, you know, be that old. And I, I don't want to believe that your life like ends at a certain point, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to see something like that. If, if anyone has any recommendations, let me know, please. <laughs> I have a couple, okay, but not very many. That's, it's really true. This is not a common thing. Um, there is a Courtney Milan novella that I cannot currently remember the name of, but it is a like older lesbian historical situation. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, there is a graphic novel called Bingo Love. Okay. Oh my God. And I love it there, already. Yeah, it's great. And there is a Jasmine Guillory. This is a little, they're not like older, older, but they're like, it is the mother of the main character in a different Jasmine Guillory book. Okay. Who's like the, the main character in this one. And it's her Christmas one that I now obviously also can't remember the name of, but oh, right. It's real um, holiday. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Oh, exciting. Okay. I will check some of those out because yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to read about old people smooching, but it's like, well, you're going to be old. <laughs> Get over you it. You should like, be so lucky. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's really not that common. And we like do have like a tag in our system in the bookstore for main characters who are over 40, which is not oh, even elderly. Yeah, I know. It, it like hurts me too. I'm like approaching, but, um, but that's kind of the line. Like, you're like, yeah. oh wow, that's they're 42. Like, Ooh, put them in dead, an old people's home. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know. I like old, I think old people are cool. <laughs> well, it's funny because it's for sure a subgenre of like mystery novels, right? There's like the the retirement home like detective club books that are all so fun. I have a theory about this. Tell me. So people are are good with backing or or rooting for an older character if they are performing a public good or service, right? You're solving a murder, amazing. Like give that old lady a medal, you know? <laughs> like she did it, hooray, Miss Marple. But like if some, if an older person is doing something like quote unquote selfish, like finding a new boyfriend and smooching them, it's like, oh, that's just, that's just for you. And it's like, yes! <laughs> yeah. Some characters do not exist for like just to, you know, do things for for you or for society at large. Although I I believe that smooching people is a public good. (laughs) Okay, well, when you finish like 18 books you're currently writing and they all get published in like 2030, I really look forward to this golden years romance. Yeah, well, by then I'll be that also. So I'll have a lot more experience to draw upon, but, uh, yeah, I, I would love to, yeah. 20, 2030, 2045. If, if we're all still around, I'll give it a shot. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Speaking of old people smooching or people of any age smooching, how do you approach writing sex scenes in your books? Is there like, how do you think about them? What are your sort of like goals? What are you trying to do with them? So, uh, it's really funny because, I mean, it's just us two here. <laughs> yeah, that's how this works. Um, I, I mean, I came from, you know, I, even in, as a younger kid, as a teenager, I was writing like fan fiction before I knew what it was, right? I think that that is a pretty, not universal, but I think it's a pretty um, common background for a lot of writers and romance writers in particular. And I think that I, I never had an issue mentally, I would say, with sitting down and being like, here are my two favorite characters and now they are kissing, blah, blah, blah. And having just a great time with that and making it silly and sexy and, and you know, whatever I wanted to do. Um, and then when it came to writing my original stuff, it was like, at least at first with Chef's Kiss, it was like this brick wall. It was like, well, I know these people. <laughs> These are real people that I know, and it is rude to assume that they're okay with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I I really had to get over this this mental block I had that, like, first of all, they're not real. <laughs> like, <laughs> I made them up. So we can, you know, I can I can feel very um, attached to them and very responsible for them, but they're not. 
they're not real people. They are, they are, you know, means to an end in a lot of ways. And I, I also had a lot of anxiety around the idea that, you know, other people were going to be reading this, not just like strangers, like strangers on the internet who are leaving you nice comments or one thing, but like strangers in the world and also people who do know me and also my mom. And also like, you know, and then your brain is going through the list of people that you do not want to read. <laughs> and you start just like, you know, you start spinning your wheels and really messing yourself up, not setting yourself up for success, I would say. <laughs> and so I, I struggled with that a little bit for sure. Uh, when writing chef's kiss and I, uh, was also very cognizant of the idea that for some readers, maybe perhaps many readers, this might be the first time they had ever seen a an, an, any instance of a non-binary person being sexual or being romantic. And I just felt really pressured to do a good job, you know, to make sure I didn't, I didn't um, do a bad job, which is like, well, how do you, you know... <laughs> You can't mess it up. You just you just tell them the truth. This is how this person would have sex or this is what these two characters are doing when they're when they're getting together. And at first it was really really difficult for me to kind of to get over that hump. And uh with Chef's Choice, I was feeling the anxiety like coming up again because I knew that like these two characters were going to, you know, do it. And I was, again, like spinning around in a circle, like over it, over all these different things. And I had to have like a lot of talks with my agent, my first reader, who's a very good friend of mine, my therapist, just about all the things that were coming up when writing this stuff. And, you know, I I can't speak for every uh, queer person who's writing romance books, but for me, it just it felt like I needed to draw some lines between like what the public is allowed to see of me and my personal life and my beliefs and and my, you know, experiences and, and what I'm allowed to keep private. And, you know, if people are assuming when they're reading my sex scenes that like, well, okay, I know what's happening with TJ and their life. Like, okay, if you want to like... <laughs> you want to assume things, you know, that's, that's not, that speaks more to somebody else than it does to me. So I, I had to really, I I had to really, you know, get on board with that idea that like, I wasn't responsible first of all, for portraying trans people in, you know, the best, most positive affirming light. I mean, I want to, but I'm also, you know, human. And hopefully there are other <laughs> trans non-binary writers that we can like all kind of be allowed to do things our own way and not be responsible for like the only, you know, portrayal of this in media. This is all to say that I was like, I want them to have a lot of sex <laughs> or at least more sex than my characters had in Chef's Kiss, which is a very slow, slow, slow burn. Um, so just like naturally they didn't have as as much steam in that book as these two characters have in this one and you know i it, these scenes i went through a lot of rewrites i really did like trying different things seeing what felt good to me what seemed right and ultimately like realizing that a lot of the answers to the questions of like well who's doing what and you know how am i going to make this interesting and how am i going to make sure people don't think that this is just straight sex that was another thing that i was very concerned about because jean pierre is a trans man and luna's a trans woman and so they're a man and a woman having sex but they're not straight like they're they're just not they're they're in a queer relationship well they're arguing about whether or not they're in a queer relationship <laughs> but i'm taking luna's side on this one i think they're in a queer relationship I created them and I get to decide. So, um, so yeah. And just like realizing that the answers to all of those questions that were bugging me are coming from the characters themselves, that they're telling me like via the experiences that they're coming to this story with and what their backgrounds are like and, and who they trust and who they love. Like this is, you know, who they are and this is how they would have sex. So yeah, I hope people enjoy it (laughs) because it was very hard and I'm going to complain about it every time. As is your right. Thanks. All right. So you mentioned you have a book coming out. It's like a holiday book. It's coming out in the fall, right? I do. It's coming out December 5th of this year. So this is like a really wild two book year for me. Um, It's It's called uh, Second Chances in Newport Stephen. 
and it is a holiday second chance rom-com. Um, it's about a trans man named Eli who loses his job. This is a this is a theme in a lot of my books. I don't know if my trauma is too apparent to anyone at this point, but he loses his job and he is forced to move back home to his hometown in South Florida, uh, or at least go down there for the holidays while he figures out what's next. And he ends up running into his old boyfriend from high school, Nick, uh, who he hasn't spoken to since his transition or, you know, long before uh, his transition. And they reconnect. And it's it's just, it's the book I have always wanted to write without knowing I wanted to write it. And I'm just, I'm so proud of this book. And I love these guys so much. And it's got all the weird, bizarre Florida things uh, that I loved about growing up in South Florida. It's got all the horrors <laughs> of it as well. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's it's coming. I hope people like it. I look forward to it. And I love a book that gives us a trope in the title. Like that's classic old school romance, like the Greek billionaire's baby. Like this is a second chance book. I yeah. Love get, give me some SEO, you know, tell yeah. me what I'm getting. <laughs> like you can give me a Taylor Swift lyric. I love it, but like, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> like... <laughs> Before I let you go, can you recommend a couple of books that you have read and loved recently? Yes, I can. I I think most people um, who either follow me on social media or have talked to me within the last like month or two know this about me already. But I read um, Anita Kelly's Something Wild and Wonderful, and it is wonderful. It is great. I loved it. Everyone should read it. Please, maybe like check it out. And um, something else that I that just recently came out that I loved, loved, loved was Camille Kellogg's Just As You Are, which is a queer retelling of Pride and Prejudice, and a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And it's wonderful. And I have, I don't think we're sharing a book birthday this year, but it's close, I believe. There's a book coming out um, this month in May, later in May, called Wild Things. And it is a British rom-com kind of an ensemble rom-com about a group of friends who decide to buy a house in the British countryside together and the main character has a unrequited crush on her best friend and now they are roommates and I just I loved it so much I hope I hope people pick that up it's really cute and it has a great cover I like the cover of that one. Yes, it's bright yellow. There's like a chicken you'll see it. (laughs) It has big like millennials deciding to buy a house in the country energy like yeah. just the whole like yeah which is the dream which is the yes. the queer dream that is out of our reach that we will never <laughs> never get to achieve but we want to and it's like cheerful yellow someone has a shovel or a thing i don't know i don't know how to farm <laughs> all right well thank you so so much this has been a delight well thank you so much for having me this was great And there you have it, a huge thank you to TJ for being unreasonably charming despite the unseasonal weather. If this conversation has made you want to pick up a copy of Chef's Choice, you can do that in our shop or on our website, meetcutebookshop.com. If you're still wondering about the name of that Courtney Milan historical novella about elderly lesbians, I've got you. It's called Mrs. Martin's Incomparable Adventure. Bingo Love is the graphic novel I mentioned about older sapphics, and Royal Holiday is Jasmine Guillory's novel about people with one foot in the grave, aka over 40. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would so appreciate if you could take a moment to rate and review it on the podcast listening platform of your choosing. It helps other people find us. Plus, it's been very gloomy in San Diego lately, and I'm getting a touch of seasonal affective disorder. That's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.